Okay, Johnny, another awesome conversation today. We chatted with Captain Megan Henry. You and I have both known Megan for a while now. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Megan has a really interesting history. She was a two-sport Division I athlete, both in field hockey and track. She eventually transitioned to skeleton and had a national team career and Olympic aspirations. She's now shifted over to Olympic weightlifting, but she's also participated in the Army's elite competitor program, and she's studying to be a mental performance coach of her own. So whether it's personal, professional, athletic, she's had a really rich history, I think, in the world of lived experience when it comes to mental strength and mental training, and it was great to talk to her about it. What were some of the highlights for you, John? So I love talking about how on earth she manages stress, just focuses or even kind of slips away from focusing on anything. It just gets into a state of kind of oneness with what she's doing in such a dangerous, intense sport, skeleton. And she talked about how she manages stress tolerance and certain strategies she uses for that, such as mindfulness and meditation, one of the mindfulness training and meditation, the strategies she used to overcome kind of comparing herself to others and not focusing on an outcome so much. And this is fascinating given that she's a competitive athlete, right? How you overcome comparing yourself to others in such a competitive field and focusing on outcome when it's so outcome driven. So that was really interesting to me. It seems that that's not kind of the typical life of an athlete. Obviously, I'm, I, I don't know many athletes in, in that world at all, but understanding how she sees it and how she copes with that and navigates such a high stress situation, such an extreme sport so well, and how she gets into that mental space and how that relates to other life experiences. Totally agree. So enjoy our conversation with Captain Megan Henry. Hello. Hi, Megan. Hey. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thanks. Nice to see you again. Great, thank you. Great to see you. I just got back from England, actually, last night. Oh, wow. What were you doing over here? My boyfriend lives in Manchester, so I was there. <laughs> oh, cool. So you must visit here often, right? Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm doing my graduate degree online and luckily, you know, I can do it from anywhere. So I spent like October to January there and then I was just there for like the past month. So, yeah, nice, nice. nice. Where are you now? Connecticut is where I'm from. And okay. so I'm back here for a bit. And I retired last year. And since retirement, I've been traveling a lot more on my terms versus just traveling for competition. So <laughs> sure, sure. Cool. Awesome. John, ready to rock? All right, let's do this. Okay. okay. Megan, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Missed your travel between the UK and the US, where Nick and I are. So yeah, we really want to talk to you today about mental training and the role it plays in athletic performance. Let's kick off with that. So why is mental training so important for athletic performance? It's so underestimated. So I come from an athletic background. I'll elaborate on that a little bit. Essentially, I've played sports my whole life and I played two division one sports. I played field hockey and I ran track. And then after that, I joined the military. And then from there, I was recruited to compete in skeleton, which if you don't know what that is, it's like luge, but head first. So it's on the same track as bobsled, like the movie cool runnings, but it's one person and you go head first on basically a lunch tray <laughs> going like 80 miles an hour and experiencing five G's of force. And throughout my life and my athletic career, there was a ton of emphasis put on the physical aspect of training and competing. And that's where 
I would say a good majority of people are focusing their attention and their energy. And there's a lot to be gained from the mental side of it, because once you get to a really elite level, like for example, I was on the national team for the U S everybody's got the physical stuff down, right? The thing that is separating them is the mental aspect. And yeah, I think that's why it's so important. It's kind of, now it's a bit more mainstream. I would say when I first started competing in skeleton, which was a decade ago, (laughs) even in college, like when I first was competing in, in college, sports psych was like just becoming the thing. And it's, it's really on the scene now, you know, you see it in also in the corporate space and in sports. So it's, it's kind of getting out there and more and more, but I think it's still not given the credit that it deserves. (laughs) Awesome. So let's Nick, sorry, you want to dive in there? No, that's okay. So, I mean, you've already touched on your athletic history a little bit with the national team, the sort of Olympic trajectory, and that'll tie in obviously nicely with the sports psych piece, but mental performance overall, but you also have a military history, right? And one that's also a performance related, but I think leadership related as well. And I imagine that's played a pretty significant role in your developing interest in this field as a whole. So maybe you'd walk us through your history there and some of the connective threads. Sure. So I had kind of always wanted to join the military, even when I was young, And I went to American University in Washington, D.C. And so I was in that, you know, the federal, looking towards federal jobs. And when that wasn't really coming about when I was about to graduate, a lot of the jobs I was interested in, particularly like in the FBI and things like that, they wanted you to have three to five years work experience and a master's degree. And so for me, the way to do that is that I was like, well, I've always had an interest in joining the military, but I was playing sports in college. So I didn't go the ROTC route. So I joined essentially a month after I graduated. And I was like, this is how I'm going to get my work experience and my graduate degree, which is in intelligence studies. And that's still my job in the military. I'm an intelligence officer now. So I went from enlisted, commissioned a few years ago, and I'm a captain in the army. And Yeah, it was an interesting transition to go from like sports to military and both of them, what attracted me to both of those spheres is the physical and the mental challenges of both of them. And so I joined the military after graduation and then I was recruited to do skeleton by way of bobsled. So at first I was recruited to do bobsled and I was too small for that. I'm five foot two, 120 pounds. So I was just not fit for bobsled. And I'm actually very, very small for a skeleton. For a while, I was the smallest skeleton athlete competing in the world. So bobsled was definitely not this <laughs> the route for me. But in doing so, I found out that the Army has the world-class athlete program. So if you have the potential to either be on a national team or make an Olympic team, if your application is accepted, that's essentially your job. Your job is to compete and represent the military, ideally on the highest stage, and bring home medals. That's the goal. And so I feel really fortunate to have had that. I think it's the coolest job in the Army. I did it a few times. So I was in and out of the program. And it was great. I mean, it was awesome. But what coming from a team sport background, mostly, and switching over to skeleton, Skeleton is very unique in that you can only do it for six months out of the year. It is something where you have to be relaxed while you're going 80 miles an hour head first. (laughs) And while I think in all sports, your tension or stress or anything outside or off the field, so to speak, does come and translates, 
it's like amplified in skeleton because if you're holding any sort of tension in your body, you could be doing all of the right steers and everything looks nice, but the time will reflect it. Mm -hmm. And early on in my career, I was trying to force results and perfectly steering in all of the right places and the results weren't reflecting that. And so skeleton kind of gave me this opportunity to go more into the mental space that I had neglected while I was on a team sport. And I really, really got into mindfulness and meditation and just having like a bit of detachment there. So I want to come back to the mindfulness meditation piece, because that might already be kind of preemptively be answering another question we have for you, which is what you pulled from your various experiences. But I think there's probably another couple of experiences I want to double click on. So we've got this military history, right, which is a certain type of performance and pushes a certain type of mental strength. Physical as well. We're just a little more focused on the mental side at the moment, right? You've got this national, like, budding sort of, you know, Olympic career. You're competing, right? You mentioned that you're undersized. So that's forcing certain, I think, probably forays into mental conditioning and and all the mind games that come with it. But I think you've also had some personal health questions or health scares, right? And then now you're studying this on a very academic level, right? And you're preparing yourself and training yourself. And so I wonder if you just talk to us a little bit about the health piece, right? What you're doing now to study. And, and then I'm going to bring all four of those together and, and propel us forward with it a little bit. Awesome. So in 2012, I suffered from pulmonary embolisms, which is blood clots in the lungs. And I got it from a birth control that I was taking. And I essentially was told, you know, you, you may never be an athlete ever again. It was a very stark contrast and juxtaposition from going from training six days a week, sometimes twice a day, and then being in a hospital and bedridden for 10 days. And then when I was released, they're like, okay, you can walk for 10 minutes a day. Huge contrast. It was, you know, my world was literally flipped upside down. Sure. And that also propelled me to be more focused on the mental side of things just for my own sanity. And, you know, I certainly went through bouts of depression, just having like an identity crisis of who who am I, if I am not competing and what if I don't return to this ever again? And so that kind of propelled me into this space as well. And what else did you want me to touch on there? Well, I know you're currently studying this on a very academic level. So you've got these like really interesting three sort of, you know, different areas of lived experience, but now you're doing it sort of I don't want to say outside the lived experience, but like I said, (laughs) research-based, academic, maybe a little bit more theoretical, right? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So I retired from Skeleton last year, and I knew for a while that the next step for me was going to be in the mindset space, specifically sports psychology. So that's what I'm studying now. So I'm getting my second graduate degree in sports psychology, and I've done a couple of other certifications and just kind of backing up my personal experience with the knowledge and to make that into wisdom, I guess, so that I can help other people. Because I feel like I have a lot to offer from my personal experience, but obviously if I can back that up, (laughs) it helps a lot. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 It's more of a both and right. So, okay, great. So really, really incredibly interesting, I think, and inspiring in many ways background. Now you've been doing the studying, right? But you're doing even more. You're kind of formalizing your ability and and hopes to train others. And it sounds like one of the biggest takeaways you've had both from the lived experience, but maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, the academic study is mindfulness and meditation, right? So if we start talking core skills, 
how do we do this? What have you learned? Let's start with mindfulness and meditation and see where it takes us from there. So the biggest change for me coming from like collegiate field hockey and then getting into skeleton as well as the military was a deliberate mindfulness practice and meditation. Meditation was by far the biggest thing that changed me as an athlete and a person. And it's been the most longstanding, I guess, practice that I have. How did, how did it change you? I think my awareness and just how I viewed myself and others, I had way mm. more presence. I was kind of a negative person before. Okay. <laughs> and mm. so it allowed me to kind of distance myself from one outcomes, particularly in competition, but also just taking things seriously. Like it's not that serious, you know, just even conversations with people. It just really, really impacted me. And so I've gotten, I've I've changed kind of what I do, but I still meditate regularly. I initially, my first exposure to it was actually like Zen meditation, like, you know, lotus position, sure, totally silent. And Since then, I've gotten more into guided meditations and going to meditation retreats. I've been to silent meditation retreats as well. And that, I think, is such a huge practice. And for anybody listening, that doesn't mean that you have to go and turn into a monk and meditate for hours on end. I certainly have done that just because I enjoy it and wanted to challenge myself to do so. But I think the little, even just taking the time out to be with yourself is really, really big because a lot of people don't want to do that. People don't like being just with themselves. And I mean, you'll see if you were to go out to a restaurant and somebody has their phone out and you leave to go to the bathroom, they're going to sit there and be on their phone by themselves because they just can't like just be. And I think that is a super powerful benefit of meditation is just allowing you to be and also to regroup from setbacks and obstacles and just be able to like have a breather. Yeah. Super transformative practice. Highly recommend it. (laughs) I'd say this all the time and whatever it might be, classes, workshops, videos, those sorts of things. And I think you hit the nail on the head. First of all, like to, to be able to demystify, right? Meditation or mindfulness as a starting point, but then to be able to show people that the practice actually just changes your ability to pay attention. You can change your perspective. You can catch habits, good or bad. You can be more intentional. You can be less distracted. It makes everything else and behavior change and well-being easier, like unequivocally, right? So I'm really, really glad you started there. And it sounds like you had a really similar experience. I did. And I would also say that meditation also gives your subconscious mind the opportunity to answer questions and solve problems for you. There's a lot of times where I've had epiphanies while meditating about something, you know, a problem that I had, but wasn't even directing like, oh, I'm going to solve this problem in meditation. You know, it it just will come to you just because you're giving your mind the space to provide the answer to you, which is obviously very cool. Yeah. So my, it's yeah. mind wandering. It's default network activity, right? Like we just had on a recent guest where we chatted about that a little bit as well. But sorry, John, go ahead. No, it's fine. First, Megan, I can't imagine you being a negative person. I can't believe you used to be. <laughs> well, you seem extremely you. positive. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that would have been like, but it's great to hear you aren't anymore. So yeah, I want to continue <laughs> on this meditation vibe a bit because it struck me something you said earlier that you go head first down an ice chute <laughs> at 80 miles an hour. Right. I mean, driving a car at 80 miles an hour, if you really think about it, it's pretty scary, right? I mean, (laughs) 
the chances of survival are pretty slim if, if you were to have like a head-on collision. Actually, well, I don't know about that. New cars, maybe not. But I mean, it's pretty damn fast to be going down, you know, a tunnel of ice head first. <laughs> I mean, I want to just, I, mean, I kind of want to ask you about your stress tolerance here and how you how you get used to this. You med- this connects obviously with meditation, because I assume that meditation is a strong way you connect with this. But what's, because this comes into the whole, you know, theme we're talking about with you here, mental training and mental strength and, and how that relates to physical training. And what do you do to get into a space where you just, don't worry about that. We'll get used to it such that it's, it's like, or yeah, do you, do down. you, or do you, yeah, or do, do you not worry? Yeah, there's that question yeah. too. I'm just imagining you going down the shoots yeah. unimaginably fast and just being like, not worried about it. <laughs> so there's different tracks all around the world and all of them have different characteristics. Some are nicer than others and some are mean Sure, sure. <laughs> and some suit my driving style or someone else's driving style, like people view different tracks differently. And so for me, if it was a track that was well-suited to me, then, and my driving style, then yeah, you're not really worried as much. But for example, in Whistler, Whistler is one of the fastest tracks in the world, if not the fastest. It's very scary. That's where the luge athlete died during, prior to the Olympics there. It's a scary place. I broke my pinky toe. I know my pinky toe. <laughs> I broke my pinky toe there, but like smashing, I crashed there. It's very scary. That's, that's all you broken at 80 miles an hour. Yeah, going yeah. Down ice. <laughs> Broke a toe. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was I mean, out of the finish corner and I smashed out of the finish corner, but the track is so intense from top to bottom. Like in some tracks, there's space for you to regroup and kind of be like, okay, and refocus. Or like, at least if I get to curve three, there's a straightaway and I can relax for a second. But in Whistler, it's not like that. It's completely successive all the way down. There's not a place for you to like check out mentally. And so it's very stressful. It's also high, high pressure corners, very stressful on the body. And so it's very taxing on the central nervous system. For me, that's a place where I was not relaxed and detached from outcome because sometimes, especially if you have a problem corner at a track, which there usually is. But if you've had a history where you've like you've crashed out of this corner or have repeated troubles there, it is difficult to separate. Even if you have a mindfulness practice and do are doing all of these things, like we're human beings at the end of the day, yeah. right? And so you are going to have that in the back of your mind. And so it's just a matter of like, are you making that your sole focus? Or can you be like, I know this is a problem, but I'm going to try and execute to the best of my ability. And for me, it was like, I have a game plan. I know what that is. I've rehearsed it mentally. I visualized that and I have to let it go and let my body do it. Because if I didn't, and I was trying to think about it while going through the corner, I might be able to execute, but you're holding so much tension in your body to try and make sure that you're executing a certain way. And so yeah, it's a matter of like, can you have the plan and have prepared and trust your preparation and then detach from it? It's way easier said than done. It's so difficult, but. <laughs> so so the easier said than done is the part I'd love to double click on. And John's asked a great question. I think you've teed it up really nicely. So it seems like as you're describing, say the track and Whistler, to me, what's resonating is like, okay, there's a challenge skills ratio to this, right? And yes. what we know across a bunch of different stuff is like, if that ratio is out of balance, 
it's going to be anxiety and tightness, and that's probably going to cause problems, right? You could be underwhelmed as well. But what's so interesting about you starting there is the connective thread with meditation is a lot of it is about perception of your ability, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, some of it is how you perceive your ability to do this, but I still go back to John's question. You referenced it a little bit. How do you do it the first time? (laughs) And then how do you start to acclimate bit by bit by bit? Because I think that's an interesting question for listeners to say when there's something that either causes me anxiety or outright fear. And you said it, Megan, like, you don't necessarily want to get rid of that, right? right? You need to know that corner's there. You actually need to be cognizant of it. You just can't let it control you. And that's where you brought us back to detachment. For somebody like trying to lean into a fear and just put one step, you know, foot in front of the other, how do you start that process? What does that process look like bit by bit to adapt and acclimate? So in Skeleton, we're super fortunate nowadays that you can look at POV or point of view video of a track before you even go. So if you've never been there before, you likely have scrambled around to get track notes from somebody to have an idea of what you're supposed to be doing on this track. And also- Can I pause you? I want to go even more micro if it's okay. Okay. Were you scared the first time you got on the sled? Is it sled? Skeleton? I don't know my terminology. Yeah, you can say sled. Okay. All right. For, no. Forget the track, just the act, right? Yeah. You weren't scared? <laughs> no, because if you're brand spanking new, they'll start you. It's like the bunny hill at the ski slope. They start you lower okay. on the track and then you gradually move up. So you kind of get, you know, like the spatial awareness of like, okay, this is my body on the sled. This is what yep. this looks like visually. And so you gradually move up to the top of the track. And there's still- that challenge skills ratio, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's still like the progression. And in the US, we moved to the top of the track very quickly, (laughs) probably because we are a bit behind in terms of like recruitment and all of that compared to other countries that have really, really established very deep teams. So we move people to the top of the track or we have, maybe that's changed. (laughs) And just to kind of get that exposure and quicken that skill set, you know, trying to just establish a skill set from where you're going to be racing from. It's from the top of the track. You don't ever go from the bottom. So that is helpful, that progression and just fine-tuning those skills. Because at first, at the first race I was ever in, I had been sliding for like four weeks. I had zero idea what was going on. Like I really didn't know what was going on. I had been to, from the top of the track in Lake Placid. I was racing in Calgary in Canada. And my first run at this track I flipped out of a corner, which they tell you, they're like this corner, people flip out of this corner. This is what's going to happen. You know, you have an idea of these are the problem corners. This is the emergency steer in this case, if you're, (laughs) if you're really screwed. So I flipped and lost my sled. That was the first crash that I ever had. I'd only been sliding for four weeks. And so, yeah, like you're aware obviously of that corner, but if you're going somewhere where you've never, ever been, like I said, you watch video beforehand, you do a track walk of the track. So you see the corners, there's different, there's so much technical stuff that goes into it. Like looking at the profiles of the ice, the ice changes depending what time of year it is, how much water has been sprayed on the track. Like there's so many other things that, you know, we don't need to talk about here today, but Mm -hmm. as far as feeling mentally prepared, like you said, you touched on the challenge skill set, challenge to skill ratio. And it's, 
sometimes you're in over your head. You, you just sure. are yeah. going, going into some of these competitions. Like you're competing against people who have been doing the sport for, you know, decades and you've only been here one time. And it's just a matter of like trusting my foundational skills. That's the biggest thing. And again, I think the biggest thing for me that made me successful was detaching from outcome and also stopping comparing myself to other people. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. Hmm. Okay. So we, yeah. Okay. Sounds like we've got to the crux of it then. So those are your two key areas. So did a shift take place when you stopped doing it? You stopped comparing yourself to others and stopped. Oh, for sure. So what did you shift the focus to, or did you just, and this would be, I take it's me that mindfulness could bring to you, just shift, go from focus on anything to an absence of focus. So in skeleton, if you are going even just for a training day at the track, so we get three days of training, only two runs per day. So six training runs before a race. So if you've never been to a track and you'd have no extra training runs, you're going in with six training runs and racing. (laughs) And so during training, they're announcing who's going, what their time was, and you get time sheets and printouts and you have all the splits of their times down the track and how many, what their kilometers per hour was on the track. I just stopped. I would bring headphones and not listen as best I could. Mm. Cause once you get to the bottom of the track, you don't have your headphones with you, but I would stop listening, like intentionally listening. And I never looked at timesheets ever. I would just mm. allow my coach to, I'd be like, that's you. If you'll tell me if something's wrong, right? Like, and it was so helpful because it allowed me to focus on my process and me versus what someone else is doing. And like, I can't control what they're, I don't know what equipment they're on. Right. 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 They could be having a stellar performance. So that was the biggest change. And ironically, that was also the reason that I didn't make an Olympic team is because I started to pay attention to those things again. So very valuable lesson for me. (laughs) Well, and how could you not in the case of, well, I I say, how can you not? I imagine it's a much more difficult thing to detach from outcome when you are literally trying to make an Olympic squad that is based entirely and exclusively on outcome. 
definitely. And for myself, so because I'm in the army prior to the Olympic season, the army didn't let me go anywhere because of COVID. So mm. I didn't, I wasn't able to compete. I did compete in our team trials that fall. And then I didn't compete again until right before our Olympic trials. So I had like, I think I had a total of 52 runs that season, which in comparison, other people have 200 plus, which isn't a lot. That's not a, rep- a lot of repetitions, right? To be yeah. an expert. If you're going by the 10,000 yeah. hour rule, it's not a lot of repetitions. And so for me, I was holding on to my past results. I had, John, as you said, when I started to implement this detachment and the focusing on me, you know, my trajectory looked really, really nice. I ended up being a World Cup medalist. I was eighth in overall on World Cup number one in the US. I was just trending really nicely. I had that momentum. It was building my confidence. I was very, very present with how I was performing. Yeah. And so then I had a year off basically before the Olympics, which no one in their right mind would do <laughs> by choice. So when I came back, I was holding on to these results that I had that, you know, my best season basically. And so I was comparing myself to me But like last time I was here, I got this result. So I should be doing that. And then it turned into, well, how are my teammates doing? And where are they ranked? Because I need to be ranked in the top two of three. And so, and it was so close. I ended up missing out by 12 points, which is not a Mm -hmm. lot. It's based on a Mm -hmm. point scale. And Mm -hmm. it it was the last race, the last race prior to the Olympics is what separated the two of us. We were just like, all three women, we ended up being ranked 13th, 14th, and 15th for the US at 13th, 14th, 15th in the world. So we were like neck and neck. We were just always swapping like who was where. It was yeah. nuts. <laughs> so yeah. And having that detachment was even more difficult because not only was the pressure of an Olympic season there, but I also felt like I was like reaching to make up for lost experience. Cause when you step away from skeleton, you're I felt very much out of a rhythm and not at one with my sled to sound very Zen. Yeah. You're just not in a rhythm and it feels a bit foreign. And so that was a huge struggle for me because then I was trying to like force over your skis. Yeah. 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 And then, I mean, and the results obviously mimicked that and I didn't have like a horrendous season by any stretch, but compared to what I thought I would have been, that was difficult to detach from. Yeah. It's really interesting as you've mentioned the meditation and mindfulness piece and what you just described, I think performance wise is having your mind completely full of the thing you're doing, not the result of the thing you're doing, right? Like by definition, if there's any part of you focused on the result or somebody or something external to yourself, you are not fully in that experience. And for somebody like yourself, whose margin of error is so tiny, I imagine things like that make a really, really significant difference, right? It does. In retrospect, do you think there are things you wish you would have done or think you could have done to more effectively detach from the result? Some of the practices that I used were also self-talk related. So big on in mindfulness, big on self-talk and visualization. And the, the one that dropped significantly was the self-talk. It changed. Mm. Mm. And I used, so one of the things I'm interested in now and studying now also has to do with language and the words that we use. 
You've been posting a lot, of, a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you can, you can shout out your social right now if you want. At the Savage Meglet. <laughs> Great. Perfect. We'll put it in the and link as well, but yeah. Perfect. Savage. Definitely. And so a lot of the language that I was using at the time is what I would call pressure language. Like I need to do this. I have to. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking traps. And Definitely. And so that type of stuff takes up so much bandwidth in your mind, right? And you end up ruminating when you have that kind of language versus focusing on what you can do. And so I would say my self-talk shifted or even just, I did use affirmations a lot and it helped me. And people feel, you know, you either feel one way or another about affirmations, but I thought they were very helpful to me just to get used to the idea of performing at a certain level. Because when I first made the national team for the US, it took me a long time to get there because I didn't believe that I deserved to be there. And so I had to Mm. like tell myself that like, I can do this and I deserve to be here. And so, yeah, I do recommend that. (laughs) And the other thing that I wanted to touch on is that, as you said, humans are largely better at doing than thinking about the thing that we're doing. And you see that in choking, for example, when athletes choke is because they're Mm -hmm. thinking about the thing that they're doing, whereas they normally wouldn't. You normally wouldn't be thinking about your golf swing from start to finish. It's a natural fluid process. And if Mm -hmm. you're trying to think about it while you're doing it, it becomes this very rigid, unnatural movement, right? And I would say that that is also what happened to me. (laughs) So my understanding, one or both of you can correct me if if you understand it differently. There's a line of research that actually backs that up, that if you try to get somebody to think about doing something habitual. So the simple example is like, we probably get out of the shower and towel off the exact same way every time. We probably brush our teeth in really similar patterns every time. We walk, right? But if you start trying to think about doing it a certain way or walking a certain way, you are typically going to see lower performance, worse performance. And I think it's a, they describe the mechanism as a lot of what you mentioned, Meg, was sort of like mechanical and robotic, and you're losing some of the automaticity and fluidity of just the system taking over. John, I see you shaking your Mm -hmm. head. Like as a musician, like there's probably a big difference between, you know, like Tinker Taylor on, I know you play guitar, but like on the drums versus just fluidly moving with the beat. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just the, I'm also thinking of Timothy Galway's work here. I'm I'm sure you've read Megan. I'm no, I'm unfamiliar. Share with us. Oh, okay. So the idea in his books, the inner game. So started with the inner game of tennis, but then it's the inner game Mm. of golf. I think he has the inner game of music. In a game of work, because all the inner game books, he draws a distinction between what he calls self one and self two. And he imagines on a tennis court, he was a tennis trainer, right? He imagines that he's, he's looking at tennis players who are getting frustrated with themselves, shouting at themselves, like, you idiot, why did you do that again? And he says, let's call this person that's speaking self one. You know, they get angry, they always express it. Then let's think of self two, just the body doing its thing. And he's like, imagine this is a conversation between two people. Self two never says a word, just does what it's told or doesn't do what it's told. And just gets on with stuff. And self one's just abusing it all the time. And he's like, why is self two taking that off self one? This is going nowhere, this debate. And he's like, he developed a form of training where it's letting go of this kind of rigid attempt to control yourself and just letting yourself go with the flow. Just do your thing. Just feel the racket in your hands. Just swing and do it. And developed a whole form of very successful training and has now you know, written many books on the inner mm-hmm. game, various forms that sounds like what we're getting on to here just letting yourself be with your body and not trying to control things but let the body take over and do its thing here in the context of riding skeleton at 
ferocious beast. <laughs> Is that right? Definitely. Yes. And I, I've read the, the inner game of tennis and another book that it's not sim- exactly similar, but the chimp paradox kind of talks about how you have a chimp, your monkey mind that saying all of these things <laughs> to you yeah. and yeah, having that like, okay, can you do the other thing about mindfulness would be like, can you just recognize this voice and is it yeah. real? Is that truly you? <laughs> yeah. And that's a whole yeah. other conversation to have. But... See those selves. Yeah. Well, yeah. it goes back okay, to your so... original point about awareness, right? Just being able to catch this stuff in the first place. Sorry, John. No, no. Well, I want to get into these practical strategies a bit more. We mentioned when we came on to this question of how on earth you cope. It's a terrifying experience. <laughs> how you ever get used to this. So you mentioned two things. One was detaching from outcome. And you described how you did that. But the other you said was stopping comparing yourself to others. And I want to focus on that as well, because in research on well-being, one of the factors that significantly hinders happiness and well-being is the human tendency, which is almost impossible to overcome, to compare ourselves to others. And this is one of the reasons often given for people who are, you know, who have, let's say, a high financial material stability, living in a very affluent life in a city where they have everything in abundance, not being happy or fulfilled. One factor for there is there's this comparison with everyone else around them who's maybe doing even better than them in various respects in life. So how do you detach from comparing yourself to others when you're in a competitive sport? <laughs> Competing uh, I, at the highest level. So for me in skeleton, I didn't didn't pay attention to what anyone was doing in training. I didn't look at times, didn't listen to times. And I also didn't do it in races either. And so in a race, you're given a start number. It's a random order. And you go, you know, one through whatever the number is, let's say it's 25. And then the second heat goes in reverse order for it goes. So 25 to one, it goes slowest to fastest. And so I would try as best as possible because I'll put up a list to show you where you're at that I would find my name and I would like literally put my hand over what the times were and I would see who were the three people in front of me and like just know that when this person goes out, like I'm going to be on deck basically. And so that was so helpful because it allowed me again to focus on me and what I was doing and it allowed me to just show up the best I could. And as far as comparing ourselves to others, I have a client right now and she's actually doing a social media detox. And part of that is just for business. She's doing a social media detox for business purposes, but she's also simultaneously training for a competition just as a hobby. And we decided that it would be good for her to take a social media cleanse because it's very difficult to utilize social media without making that comparison. And like you said, that's just a human tendency to do that. And so I did this as well when I was competing. I would not be on social media prior to competition. And actually for three or four months leading up to the Olympic, like the when the Olympic team was named, I was not on social media at all. And part of that is because you see, I, I mean, all of the other skeleton athletes are posting what they're doing and their training and all that type of stuff. And it's just it just takes up a lot of room in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like, well, I can use that energy rather than having to see it, process it, have a thought about it, and then have to, you know, reframe this thought. It's like, okay, well, my energy is better spent on recovery and making sure that my nutrition is on point and my sleep. And so that I can show up 
and compete how I want to compete. And so that for me, that was one of the ways. And I'm not saying everybody's got to do a social media detox, but you should try it because it is very, very helpful. And one of the things that has been awesome, maybe it's not because sometimes I'll probably miss stuff like emails from you guys, but it's really, really freeing to not be anchored to something like that. And yeah, we live in such a unique time where social media is so big that it makes that, you know, that tendency to compare yourself so easy. It's automatic, right? You're not even thinking about it and it's just constant. And it's very unnatural. If you think about like the history of humans, you wouldn't be put in that situation and have so much information and pictures of everybody in front of you at all times. You just would not have had that at any other point in human existence. Yeah. Well, it brings up, I think, an interesting question or maybe bridge to another topic. To what extent do you feel like your well-being or a peak competitor, peak athlete, their level of well-being is relevant to their level of performance? Do you think those two are correlated? Because I hear you saying, you know, meditation, distress tolerance, nutrition, sleep, you know, stress management, all these sorts of things. And, you know, okay, yeah, we're talking about like mental strength and performance, but what you're describing is like stuff that tends to just make people feel better first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. You think the two are connected? Definitely, for sure. I think that if how you see yourself and how you think about yourself, I mean, think about it. If you're in a bad mood, are you coming and giving your best work? Like it's certainly possible you can just based on the skills that you have, but I would guess, and I don't know, I'm sure there's research to verify any of this, but I'm not sure that if you feel really good and you're rested and recovered and all these things, your performance is probably going to be better, sure. right? Like sure. it's just, sure. it's just going to be better. And I think, yeah, feeling good. And however, I did one of the phrases that I used to say to myself is that I train to be the best in the world on my worst day. And that if I wake up and I feel exhausted and all of this stuff that I can still perform, I'm an elite athlete. I can still perform today. So I don't want to, you don't have to feel great to still perform well and do the thing you want to do that. I'm really glad you said that that's an important piece. I think in the, you mentioned the research, we would distinguish between a flow state where that's very euphoric and a clutch state which is not. It's I feel like crap, but I'm going to, or I'm feeling really stressed or pressured, but I'm going to get it done anyway. Right. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, I don't want to say that it's like exclusive. Like if you feel like crap today that you're not going to perform, it's certainly possible. And I've done it. And however, yeah, I would say like well-being goes a long way. And we saw in one of my teammates, Stephen Holcomb, he was bobsledder. He broke the medal drought for men's bobsled, a 50-year medal drought. And he ultimately passed away a few years ago. He really, really struggled with depression and just identity outside of the sport. And having I mean, there's been a huge push for like mental health for athletes in recent years, which is awesome because yeah. there is a lot that goes into being a high-level athlete. And There's a lot that goes into being a high level athlete. And part of that comes from sacrifice, isolation. There's, I mean, a ton, a slew of things. And while it might not be the same as, let's say, somebody who's in like on the front lines in combat, there's still a level of stress and pressure of being an elite level athlete that does wane on their mental health. And 
a lot of it can be self-imposed pressure and just their what they think about others and their expectations of them. So a lot of it can be from like internally and what we think our parents are going to say or our coaches think of us. A lot of it is self-imposed pressure, which is why I think the mindfulness aspect is so important because it kind of can create a little bit of separation from that. Like, well, I'm not just a skeleton athlete. I am also a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a student mm. you know, I'm in the military. I have all of these other identities. And at the end of the day, I'm doing something that I really, really love doing. So is it really that bad if like I didn't make the Olympic team? Mm. Does anybody really care? Like <laughs> the life goes on. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. Like I had a ton of people support me on my journey. I was very, very blessed. I loved what I was doing. I absolutely loved competing. It was the greatest experience of my life. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And there was a lot of downs to it as well. There was really toxic team environment, very, you know, just how the leadership was and all of that. And so there was, for me, I was like, well, is this really the space where I am going to be thriving and being a light bringer to others. And that was part of my reason for deciding to retire was that I don't feel like I'm in a space where I am being lifted up to perform my best and supported in the way that I want to be supported from my team and the governing body. And that's just kind of the nature of the beasts when it comes to Olympic sports and teams. There's a lot going on in terms of funding and all of that. But for me, because the funding is an issue, there ends up being a super toxic relationship between the athletes themselves as well, because you're fighting mm -hmm. for resources. And going back to talking about language, a lot of the language that was used in skeleton was scarcity. It came from sc scarcity and lack and, you know, fighting for. It's a zero sum lack. game. Yeah. Not everyone can win. Right. And so for me, I was like, well, I'm still an awesome athlete, even if I didn't make, I know I'm Olympic caliber. I know that I had what it takes. And so just because I didn't make the Olympic team doesn't mean that I was a failure. And that is a huge struggle with Olympic sports because you have a four year cycle. And so sure. there's so much built up into it. And then it's like, oh, your whole career was a failure because you didn't make the Olympic team. And it's like, well, that's not fair. You know, it's not really fair to yourself to look at it that way, but a lot of people do. Awesome. Thank you. So there's a bunch of strategies there. I mean, one of them sound like a worst case scenario visualization and coping with that. It's like, look, what if I don't win? What if I don't get a medal at all? What if I don't even, you know, make the competition? Why does that matter in the context of my life as a whole? Because I've got all these other great things going on. You mentioned, you know, being a family member, being a sibling and so on, right? So you, I take it you're doing some kind of visualization beforehand of this within the wider context of your life and contextually being like, this is great but there's other cool stuff going on as well. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Right. So you know about one question we ask all our guests, Megan, it's the flourishing question. What's the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? So I would say that the one thing that I would want people to walk away with is that they are likely not lacking it. They are blocking it and that they have the power within them to create the results that they seek. I think that is so huge and really, really powerful. And I hope your listeners take that away. And yeah, and another thing is, if you don't know the way to unblock it, 
there are certainly people out there that can help you. And for me, one of the things that why I didn't make an Olympic team again is because I thought that I knew better at the time that, well, I have all these practices and I have established this and I should know better and I should be able to regroup. And I could have utilized some people to support me in that process. And I didn't. And so I would share that there's never a shame in utilizing people who have skill sets that can elevate you. And yeah, you have the power within you. Good. Love that. Lean and lean on others to draw it out of you. Love it. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Love that, Megan. <laughs> Megan, right. thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time today. This was a really enjoyable conversation for John and I. Good to hang with you for a bit. Thank and you. Thanks for having I, I know me. You- I know you mentioned your social handle earlier, but just tell, you know, the audience, where can they interact with you, find out more about you, communicate with you? Sure. All social media channels. I'm at the Savage Meglet. You can also email me at Megan at the And yeah, eventually I'll have a YouTube channel and maybe I'll have a podcast too. And I'll invite you guys on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. We look forward to it, but thanks Thank again you. for the time, Megan. Appreciate it. Thank you, Megan. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.